Good morning. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, please open up in your New Testament to the book of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And we will read verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In the play Romeo and Juliet, the following statement is made. What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. What is he conveying? In essence, that names have no significance in and of themselves. And I would disagree with that assessment. Names are indeed very significant. In the Bible, God has various names of which all are significant. Jesus had various names, such as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Son of the Most High, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, and we could go on and on. And all of those names have significance and this morning, even though we're in August, we're going to have a little Christmas in August. Uh, some of the stores can do that, so we might as well talk about Jesus and his birth as well. What I want to do this morning is to look at three names that come in our text. Um, some people think about Jesus in many different ways, but these names really tell us who Jesus is. If you were to ask a neighbor or a friend or uh, someone you work with, uh, who is Jesus? You might get an answer such as, well, he was, he was a good man. He was a good moral teacher. He came on earth to be an example. He came to heal people and help many people. Why did Jesus come? Who was he? And I would suggest to you this morning that the three names that we're going to look at tell us a significant amount about who Jesus is. Last Sunday, we sang a chorus, and we sang it again this Sunday, and it was entitled, As You Really Are. And part of that chorus says, help me to see you as you really are. And I want us to see Jesus this morning as he really is. As we look at this story, an amazing thing stands out to me, and it's that Jesus' conception was a miracle. Matthew writes in verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be child, with child by 
the Holy Spirit. And verse 20, the angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Joseph was the legal father of Jesus, but he was not the biological father of Jesus. Now, to give further evidence of this point, that Jesus was not the biological father of Jesus, just look at the genealogy in chapter 1. There's a pattern that goes on here, and most of us have probably not meditated on this, this genealogy recently. But there's a pattern that goes on here in this particular text. And I'll just start it in verse 14. It says, Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, and we would assume it would then say Joseph was the father of Jesus. But it doesn't say that. It says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom, female pronoun, Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Joseph was, in essence, the foster father of Jesus. He was not the biological father. And these verses here, especially in verse 16, really remind us of the preciseness of Scripture because the text does not say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. He says rather that Joseph was the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. This was the miraculous method by which God became man. Now we're not going to go through this text as we might normally go through verse by verse, but I want us to focus again on these three names. And the first name that I want to look at is the name Messiah. Jesus is declared to be the Messiah. If you look at Matthew 1, verse 1, it says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you look at verse 16, as we just read, it says that, that by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. At the end of verse 17, it says, And from the deportation to Babylon, to the Messiah, 14 generations. And in verse 18, it actually refers to the Messiah as well, except it comes in the form of the name of Christ. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Let's not think that Jesus was his first name and Christ was his last name. Jesus was a specific name and Christ was a specific name. And Christ in Greek, in which the New Testament was written, is the name Christos. And Matthew is saying that Jesus is the Messiah that word Christos means anointed one and is the exact equivalent of the word in Hebrew for Messiah. So when you think of Christ or Christos, automatically think of Messiah. Christ equals Messiah. And Matthew calls him Messiah in his writing. The Jews were waiting for this Messiah, this man to come. And if you look over, over to Matthew chapter 2, we're reminded of the story of the Magi and how Jesus had been born in, in verse 1. Uh, in Bethlehem of Judea. And in verse 2, they arrive from the east and it says, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled because he was, he was the man. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. 
They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Jesus was the ruling Messiah who was to come. But not only does Matthew call Jesus the Messiah, an angel of the Lord calls him that as well. We read in Luke chapter 2, the angel, an angel of the Lord said to the shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks at night, said, do not be afraid to today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ, Messiah, the Lord. An angel of the Lord described Jesus as the Messiah. The Apostle John, when he gave his purpose at the end of John for writing the Gospel of John, he said, many of the signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, that is in the Gospel of John, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John not only believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but wrote the Gospel of John so that people might believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the, the Son of God. The Apostle Paul said, but we preach Christ, that is Messiah, crucified. The Jews a stumbling block into Gentiles' foolishness. Who would have expected the Messiah, the ruler, to be crucified? And Jesus himself claimed to be the Messiah when the high priest interrogated him. The high priest said, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Mark 14. You may recall the story of the time that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Note Jesus' response. When Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Peter did not say, Peter, what are you saying? That is, that is blasphemy. I'm just a man like you. God has sent me here to be an example to you and to all the people to heal and help people. Jesus said this, no, with no rebuke. He accepted Peter's words. And he said Peter was blessed and said that man didn't reveal that to him, but his father, he called God his father, my father who is in heaven. No rebuke, total acceptance to who he was. So who was this man? The mistake that the Jews of Jesus as they made and that they have made today, unfortunately, is that many of them were anticipating simply a political Messiah at that time to come and deliver them from Roman domination. And at the time of Jesus' birth, some 60 years, Israel was being dominated by the Romans and they were looking for that political Messiah to come. And that's understandable. 
because they were assuming that leader was going to be a political one. And the belief was that he would restore the kingdom to Israel. And it's very interesting that in the book of Acts, at the very beginning, after Jesus had, had died and was raised and was about to be ascended, this sentiment is, is stated by his apostles. They were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? That was their hope and their thought pattern. The Jewish people missed the fact that the Messiah would first come as servant and savior before he could reign as ruler and king. He would first have to die for the sin of the world. And the Old Testament prophesied both. In Isaiah chapter 53, it speaks of the suffering servant and how he was pierced through for our transgressions, how he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused my iniquity and yours to fall on him. That's the sacrificial work of Christ, the Savior. But then in Isaiah 9, it also said, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So he had this picture in the Old Testament of this Messiah who was to come as Savior and servant, and also as ruler and Messiah and King. And it's interesting that Gabriel affirms this in Luke chapter 1 when he speaks of Jesus to Mary. And he says of Jesus that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so we see Jesus ultimately having these two aspects of his Messiahship. I think Warren Wiersbe has said it very well when he says, speaking of the Jewish nation, they looked for a Messiah who would come like a mighty conqueror and defeat all their enemies. He would then set up his kingdom and return the glory to Israel. And then he writes, at the same time their scribes noticed in the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer and die. Passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 pointed toward a different kind of Messiah. And the scholars could not reconcile these two seemingly contradicting prophetic images. They did not understand that their Messiah had to suffer and die before he could enter into his glory. And that's exactly what Jesus said when he was walking on the road to Emmaus with those two men who were thinking that Jesus was going to be the one who was going to deliver them. And Jesus said, what is, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? The Jews of Jesus' day were not looking for a Messiah who would be crucified, but he had to be. That was his mission. That's what he did for us out of his great love. And that's why he could say when he did, it is finished. There's a second name that we see in our text in Matthew chapter 1. It's in verse 21. The angel says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
The name Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Jehovah or Yahweh will save. So Jesus' name is connected in and of itself with salvation. And our text tells us the very reason that Jesus was given the name Jesus. You shall call him his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He himself, literally, the text says, will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? Many believe that this phrase here denotes the Jewish people, and I, I would probably tend to agree. It makes sense as Jesus was a Jew and they were his people. But we must always remember that Jesus came to forgive the sins not only of Jews, but also of Gentiles as well. Uh, Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all, everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in Luke chapter 1, in that, in that uh, birth narrative, it talks about how I will bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For all the people, for today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And, and Pastor Chris talked about this last week in Ephesians 2, about the, the Jews and the Gentiles, and, and how it says that in Christ Jesus, those who are far off, the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's the Savior of the Gentile as well as the Jew. The first thing I noticed, want us to notice from this phrase, though, when we say Jesus, for he will save his people for their sins, is that sin is something that people need to be saved from. He will save his people from their sins. Paul puts it this way in Titus. He says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. Sin is so bad that God the Father had to give his only son to come to earth to die as a sacrifice for you and for me so that we could be forgiven and ultimately go to heaven. And sin is so bad that we need to be redeemed and we need to be saved from it. And we all know that the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all of us need to be saved. The Apostle Paul says, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Someone has said there's no adjective between the word save and the word sinners. It includes any kind of sinner, the respectable and the non-respectable, those who seem so far gone and impossible to reach, and those who seem, ah, maybe this person might be a candidate. Everyone is a candidate for the blood of Christ. The word sinner is not a very popular term. Uh, we often want to talk about people's mistakes and people's errors, and people's addictions and disease, but not use the term sin. But we are all sinners in need of grace. And I've shared this with you, but I'll share it one more time. Dave Vernon McGee once put it this way, we all must begin with God as sinners. The only way that God will begin with us is as sinners, 
You see, Christ died for sinners and he loves sinners. If you can't come in under that category, then Christ is not for you. He came for sinners. Just as a person who is about to drown needs to be saved from his or her hopeless situation, so we need to be saved from our sinful situation by Jesus Christ. And notice who it is who does the saving in verse 21. It says that Jesus, he himself, will save his people. No human effort here. He himself will be the Savior. If you were drowning in a lake, would you want someone to come along and just toss you a laminated page with some swimming instructions on it? Now you're drowning. You need some help. You need somebody to throw you a life preserver. We you like somebody to say, hey, buddy, you need to be saved. It's a good time to start following the Ten Commandments. You'll be good. Or how about try doing some good works, pal? There's a boat over there. They are having engine problems, and maybe you can help them. Maybe the Lord will look at it, upon that, and it'll be good. Jesus is the Savior. He is our life preserver. We need to take it. As the song we sang earlier said, Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Oh, you rescue the souls of men. Years ago, when we lived near Albany, New York, upstate, there was a very simple sign in front of a former um, rescue mission that has, has grown and developed, but that sign simply said, Jesus saves. And that's what this text says. Jesus saves. And that's why he came. Was Jesus merely a man and a good moral teacher? He was the Messiah. Was Jesus merely a man and a good moral teacher? He is the Savior. But there's a third name in our text that I want us to see. Verse 22 Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Matthew tells us in verse 22 that Jesus' birth occurred to fulfill Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and verse 23, which was written some 700 years before this event occurred. But very clearly, the Son of Man, the Son of Mary, was the Son of God. G.I. Packer put it this way, the Word had become flesh, a real human baby, he had not ceased to be God. He was no less God than, than, than before. But he had begun to be man. He was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. Jesus, the Son of God, is God with us. And someone might ask the question, well, was Jesus truly God? What did people say about him? John the Baptist said when he saw him coming, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
And later he said, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Peter said, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. The Apostle John writes of him saying, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Okay, so Peter and John hung out with Jesus for a long time. Some three years, perhaps. Watching him, listening to him, seeing him relate to people who hated him. They said there was no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. Thomas said to him when he saw the resurrected Jesus, my Lord and my God. Paul wrote, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The centurion, after he saw the way Jesus breathed his last, said, truly this man was the son of God. The apostle John said, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Remember the time the disciples were in the boat and there's a big storm on the sea and Jesus is walking on the water. Don't try that. Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and walked on the water and began to sink. And Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. They got into the boat, the wind stopped, and then what happened? Those who were in the boat worshipped him, worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. In Matthew 17, we read the story of the transfiguration. It's an amazing story. Um, Jesus led Peter and James and John up on a high mountain where Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. Moses and Elijah appeared to them. <laughs> okay, you're up on this mountain with your buddies and Jesus is there and Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain talking to Jesus. Peter says, I'll make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still talking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Luke account said Peter didn't know what he was saying, but God clearly said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Moses and Elijah were not on the same level as Jesus. Jesus was the Son of God. And I will just mention this. Later in 2 Peter, he refers to the transfiguration in 2 Peter chapter 1. And he says, So we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Years later, that experience marked Peter to who Jesus was. So God, in essence, 
became a baby and put on skin, so to speak. Josh McDowell, in his, evident, in his excellent book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, said, if Jesus were not God, then he deserved an Oscar. He said, if God became man, you would expect him to, number one, have an unusual entrance into this life. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. You would expect him to be without sin. He was. You would expect him to manifest the supernatural in the form of miracles. He did. He healed countless people. He fed at least 4,000 at one time. He fed at least 5,000 at one time with some bread and some fish. He raised people from the dead. He walked on the water. He calmed a furious storm. He expelled demons, turned water into wine, opened the eyes of the blind. McDowell says he would go on to say he would have an acute sense of indifference from other men. Carnegie Simpson put it this way, instinctively we do not class him that is Jesus with others. When one reads his name in a list beginning with Confucius and ending with Goth, we feel as an offense less against orthodoxy than against decency. Jesus is not one of the world's great. Talk about Alexander the Great and Charles the Great and Napoleon the Great, if you will. Jesus is a part. He is not the great. He's the only. He is simply Jesus. Nothing could add to that. He is beyond our analysis. He confounds our canons of human nature. He compels our criticism to overleap itself. He awes our spirits. You would think that Jesus would speak the greatest words ever spoken. He did. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You would expect Jesus to have a lasting and universal influence. He has. That's why we're here today. You would expect him to satisfy the spiritual hunger in man. He does. And you would expect him to exercise power over death. He did. He did in regard to his own self. In John chapter 10, speaking of his life, he said, no one has, has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And Jesus predicted his own res resurrection. He said to the Jews in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he did. And he's alive today and forevermore and will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Can you imagine any of us standing up and saying that? Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Jews were so upset that they picked up stones to stone him. They said, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood what he was saying. So who was Jesus? Simply a good man, a good moral teacher. I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis put it this way. 
I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus was truly God in human flesh. He was, as someone said, the creator becoming the redeemer. And the choice is ours to bow down before him and worship him as he is, as the son of God, to submit to him, to obey him, to entrust our lives totally to him. Will we bow the knee to Jesus, the Messiah? Will we trust him as the Savior and as our Savior? And will we humble ourselves and obey and submit to him as God and King? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the reminder this morning from your word of who you are. Help us to see you as you really are and to maintain the reality of that truth in our personal lives. If there are any here this morning who do not know you as their Savior, may they realize that they can come have a heart to turn from their sin, to repent and turn to you as Savior and King and say, Jesus, I need you. I open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Thank you for coming into my life. Lord Jesus, we give you praise today for your greatness for your awesomeness that you came and willingly gave your life as a ransom for many. We give you praise and ask that our hearts would be drawn to you this day and through the coming days. In your name we pray, amen.